ESPN LA 710. Welcome to the experience here on ESPN LA. I'm LaFern Cusack. Thank you so much for joining me. Today, we're speaking with Paige Albiniak. She's editorial director for Promax BDA and contributing editor to broadcast and cable. Paige, welcome to the show. Hi, LaFern. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm really excited to have you on because you know everything about the entertainment industry. And I'm going to say that. Yes. Everything. Yep, true. Everything. Every single thing. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us what you do. I'm a journalist and an editor, and I cover, I've cover. i covered the TV industry since 1997, so like the prehistoric times. <laughs> I started off covering... Um, I started off covering Congress and the White House and the Clinton administration, and then I moved out to L.A. in 2002, and I covered the studios and the networks, and then I, in 2004, I decided to go freelance, and I moved back to my hometown of Denver, but I still essentially do that. I cover, um, I cover mostly the business of television, so not so much here's a show and what you love about it or what you hate about it, but more here's a show and here's how it was bought and sold and that part of it. Now, what makes that so interesting for you? Like, why, why did you choose that side of the entertainment industry? Laferne, did I choose it? No. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I started I off doing a lot of, like, technology kind of reporting. I always was on the, the business side of it. So I think, I mean, on one hand, I think it's also appealing to do the other side, the more consumer entertainment side. I think I just sort of ended up on the business side. And then, but I do think the business side, if you're a person who's interested in process or detail, uh, then that part is interesting to you. Right. So you worked uh, for the Clinton administration or during the Clinton administration? I, were, I covered the White House and the, and the Congress during the Clinton administration. So how? So and then Bush came in, and I guess, to, I don't know. So I can't even remember. But Bush came in somewhere in the middle there. And I'm sure someone who's better with dates remembers, like 2000 in any case, with that controversial election. And so it switched. But it was mostly Clinton while I was covering it. And tell, tell us about that experience. I think covering Congress is one of the coolest things. It can be a little dull because you're sitting in long hearings, but I was on the media beat, and there was, you know, at the time, like at one point, they hauled in all the heads of the tobacco companies, and so that would actually have a media side, so you would cover that, or, oh, well, actually, so after the the Clinton-Gore election, um, or no, the Bush-Gore election, sorry, they, the networks had flubbed the call, if you remember, and so that was a huge set of hearings where they dragged in the heads of the networks and asked them why they called the elections wrong. So you could, so during that time, you would be interacting with a lot of really high-profile people. I, I definitely um, walked up to Rupert Murdoch during a hearing and asked him questions about things. I interviewed John McCain tons of times. So it was funny when he was running for office. It was like, oh, I kind of know that guy, actually. <laughs> so, yeah, you got, you got a lot of exposure to a lot of interesting things. And you also, I definitely have a perspective on how the government works. So in today's environment, for let's say, for example, Trump says, I'm going to bring out a health care bill on Wednesday. You know that, like, I know what that process is. So mm-hmm. I also know how difficult it is to get anything passed. So you have a pretty good reality check on what's going on politically. So, yeah, so tell us about that process, because, like, I know very, very little to none. 
no information. It's like, okay, well, how can you say, okay, we're not going to have press in here or not having things like as transparent, I guess? I don't know. Do you see that? The thing is, is that because it's our government, there's actually a, a First Amendment obligation for it to be transparent. So to the degree that the current administration strives to keep things from being transparent, there's actually there's just an obligation by the people that work in those offices, particularly in Congress, because you're publicly elected. So, I mean, that's one thing I think about our system that will hold because it's it's something that's baked in. Mm-hmm. So, and that's why it's important to have press because, I mean, you can like what they're reporting or not like what they're reporting, but at least somebody's out there reporting something. So, in the end, I think that is, I mean, my thinking is that's what, no matter who's in office, there's a certain amount of protections lined up, and freedom of the press is one of those things. So, I'll say that when I covered D.C., I felt like things were much more open than when I came out to L.A. It was I was covering studios. Those are all publicly held companies, and there's a lot more control around what the studios will talk to you about, how you interview people, and how much control they try to have over what you're saying because they don't have the same obligation that Congress has very to be open. Very, very interesting. I didn't even see yeah. it like that. The other thing about the process, I won't go into the whole legislative process because it is probably not interesting to anyone, but <laughs> the one thing that is true is that, one, Congress operates on much more consensus than I think people realize. So it's hard. Like well, you just saw it when they tried to pass the health care bill. Mm-hmm. You had, they didn't really run it through its paces. So when you ran up against the Freedom Caucus, they hadn't vetted that bill. And so you're not, and then the moderates also weren't going to be happy. So you have, usually you run it through all those different groups, plus the lobbyists, which have a huge amount of influence, and before you ever even try to bring it to the floor. So in that case, they skipped all those steps. So it was no surprise that it didn't work because it takes months to get through all of that typically. But this coming week, they said that they're going to present something else that definitely is going to pass. Do you think? Yeah, there's no way. <laughs> no? Just, unless you had it really. I mean, consider that to pass Obamacare, they had to basically work around the clock for months on end. Mm-hmm. And they consulted with all the Republicans on the bill and made compromises within the bill before they ever even brought, brought it to the floor. And that still all of the Republicans voted against it. So it, there's just way more lobbying and meeting yes. that has to happen before you – and that's not, that's not true just for health care. That would be true for tax reform. That's true for media policy. That's true for anything. Yeah, I was listening to a story on NPR yesterday, um, and the gentleman was talking about how uh, in – President Trump's book, Art of the Deal, they said that in order for him to like get this casino, he told the people that uh, the I guess the Hilton hotel people, oh, yes, we're, we're already starting construction and this and that. And they're like, oh, really? And he told his people, OK, go out and get a whole bunch of large machines and and <laughs> tractors and go just dig up dirt. And if you have to fill in the holes, fill in the holes, but just dig holes. And the guy was like, and it worked. But he's using that kind of tactic for, you know, running the United States of America as well. That's what I mean, I think that's what people liked about him is that they thought he brought this different business perspective. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that may be true or not. But the problem is business or the government just isn't set up like that. I mean, just from the founding fathers, it's just not set up like that. So right. that you have tons of people that have to weigh in. And you can't just say to Paul Ryan, hey, Paul Ryan, get it done. He's got 
you know, several factions he has to marshal. And, you know, the Freedom Caucus alone can just say no and stall him out. So it's just it's, – and the president, it's not like the CEO of a company where you just have the mandate and they have to exercise it, although even a CEO is responsible to shareholders. But, you know, and Trump wasn't because his company is not public. But usually there's a board. I mean, usually there's somebody else. Mm-hmm. But still, a president is has a lot more checks and balances on him than than a CEO of anybody. So it's pretty different. And I think that's definitely something we're seeing trip up the administration because it's just not organized the same way. Right, right. And I think that there's a lot of learning. Like, if me, like, going into politics and I don't know how it works and you're shaking hands and you're saying this and that and promising things, you know, it's just a different beast. I think it's, I think it's, uh, oh, yeah, I think it's worse <laughs> than Hollywood, you know? It's... Oh, it's so, that was the thing. So I, when, that was always an interesting comparison to me. It was coming directly from D.C. to Hollywood and I actually thought Hollywood was more closed. It's, I don't want to say it's harder to cover, but it's harder to get information because nobody's obligated to share it with you. Mm. And, I mean, they talk about the egos in D.C., but the egos in Hollywood are equal, if not yes, greater than. <laughs> yes. In my in my experience. So, so they're both company towns, so in that sense they're kind of similar. So a lot of people talk about sports riding and how, like, it's now more of opinion-based and, like, tabloid-based instead of, you know, well, what's the facts? So how did you maneuver that, like, when you were writing for, you know, when you were writing in politics? How did you go about writing without putting your, I guess, bias in it or your— I, mean, I think probably there's always a little bias from any reporter. Not intentionally, but it's pretty hard to strip— things that you're writing of so it's just facts and for me I tend to try to be analytical as well I try to be in I try to have informed analysis so yes. I talk to enough people that I feel like I have a good sense of what's going on and I'm quoting them and I'm also using it to sort of form an overall take but I mean I think part of this question which did not exist it's only existed recently but the difference between real news and fake news. I think real news, most news, is reported, is researched, is, you know, does include facts. Fake news is completely made up. But I don't think, I've heard a lot of people, not just Trump do this, where they say, I had a guy the other day who didn't like a story somebody wrote, and he was yelling, this is fake news, it's fake news. And I'm like, it's not fake news, you just don't like the story. That's not the same thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think there's also the accountability that for the like the readers to investigate for themselves, well, what is actually happening happening and say, OK, you know what? I I just read an article in The Washington Post and it said this and this and this. But let me investigate some more so, you know, I can form an opinion for myself and not be told what to think. You understand? Yeah, I think that is definitely true. I also think, I think you have to consider what is the value of credibility for the news source. So I think if the Washington Post or the New York Times, two organizations that I think are doing better now, but have both been under duress, financial duress with the decline of newspapers in recent years, 
if their credibility is challenged, that's bad business for them. So I, I think you have to consider sort of what is at the core competency of the news organization. So, okay, so for example, if you're Fox News, and let's say Fox News of maybe two years ago, your core competency was informing conservatives. didn't really matter so much if what you were saying was 100% correct as long as it fit into the conservative agenda. And that served them because they got high ratings and that made them a lot of money. If you're the New York Times and you're putting out stories that people are repeatedly finding are problematic, and that's happened to the New York Times. You know, they had an issue with plagiarism with the Jason Blair case a few years ago. That really hurts them from a business point of view. So I think when you're considering a news source, you have to consider what drives them and if it makes sense that they would publish a fake story or not. And then some publishers who do publish fake news, they're making lots of money off that, so it behooves them. Right. It all comes down to the almighty dollar. <laughs> yeah, it does, ultimately. <laughs> yeah, so I I find it really interesting to, like, you know, I wake up, I check my phone, see what's trending on Twitter, and, like, go to the news sources to see, oh, okay, what's what's happening now? Like, who's saying what and how are they saying it? And it's, it's really interesting. I found this article on... Um, um, oh my gosh! And now I just forgot her name. She she was uh, a former uh, British agent. Mm-hmm. Do you know who I'm talking about? Can you read my mind, Paige? Read my mind. <laughs> Sometimes, but not right now. <laughs> well, she you know put out this article of uh, you know Trump or Carter Page went to Russia with. Oh Trump. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And I'm reading, and I'm like, oh my gosh. Okay, it was really in-depth. I like people who do their work. I mean, like, you know, you say you, they're really investigating, investigating what is happening and then bring the story out and, you know, have the your public make their own mind up. Yeah, I mean, I think also for me, I've worked for news organizations that had a very journalistic bent anyway, and... So that was just required. You know, I had editors that just demanded that. And I think that's important that you have leadership in place that requires that everything is thoroughly reported. Right, right. I don't think, I do think, though, with the Internet, so we talked about the New York Times or the Washington Post, those kinds of publications. But with the Internet, there's a lot of just basically rewriting news, which there's a place for that. But but, I mean, I've definitely in the past five years called people about a story like, oh, I saw this published on some website. And the person, the PR person would be, thank you so much for calling. No one else has called on this. And it's not true. You know, and so that, I think that's kind of the downside of the proliferation of information on the Internet is people are going really fast and people aren't really reporting stuff out. I actually think the art of just reporting is under duress, and I'm sort of hoping that the backlash from the current state of media affairs will be a drive back to more reporting. Yes, absolutely. And that's, uh, I guess a gentleman was caught plagiarizing as well a couple weeks ago, and it's like you have to get these stories quick and in a hurry and out, you know, to make that breaking news. And with that, there comes mistakes. And people are like, oh, well, how did this happen? Well, what is the plan for, you know, your company in getting information out? How hard is it for writers to keep coming up with those clickbait headlines to bring in more money and bring in more clicks? You know, the pressure for writers, I think, is, you know, expanded because of social media. 
Yeah, 100%. And that's, I mean, okay, so if you are, I cannot remember his name right now, but he just got named to become, he's going to host Washington Week in Review, and he writes for the Washington Post, and he's broken a lot of news. So if you're him, he, um, you know, he's going to take his time and do his reporting, and his stories are going to be original, and he has time to do that. So Robert Costa is his name. Um, but if you are a BuzzFeed writer, let's say, you're tasked with you need to do, I don't know, 20 stories a day, and they don't, and then I don't know that they care where they're from necessarily, and it's about your write, writing a clicky headline. And those are two different forms of the art, if you will. But I think that's one thing people do have to be able to distinguish. You know, like, this is coming from this source. How much do I, how much weight do I put on it versus this is coming from a BuzzFeed? Not that BuzzFeed is bad, but do you know what I mean? Like, the different kinds of places you're getting the news. Exactly. And I mean, that's called media literacy, and it's a thing, and it's something that I think <laughs> the current state of affairs is more and more needed, you know, for people to be very literate about what they're reading and where they're getting it. Yeah, and Paige, talking about that clickbait and that type of news, you are going to be at the NAB uh, conference at the Las Vegas Convention Center. Tell us what you're doing for the NAB and who you're going to be interviewing. So on Monday at the NAB, I'm going to interview TMZ's Harvey Levin and Frank Ticha, who is the Senior Vice President of Programming for the Fox Television Stations. And the premise of this panel, this little half-hour session, is how Fox and TMZ work together to build TMZ into both a successful show and a successful franchise. So, and TMZ is an interesting case because I think if you went to the TMZ website right now, which I will do while I'm speaking to you, I mean, they have a range of news on it, and some of it is... Some of it is arguably kind of silly. There's a lot of rappers. There's a lot of, you know, that mm-hmm. kind of stories. But the flip side of TMZ is a lot of breaking news comes from TMZ. And I would argue that they have never been wrong on a big story. You know, they've broken a lot of huge stories, and they're they're always right on. And they're, they're you can't really question them. So I do think that... TMZ is sort of an interesting beast of the current media climate. You know, it exists sort of uniquely in this day and age. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do think, you know, I've talked to Harvey a lot of times in my life, and I think, you know, he used to be the legal reporter for, I believe, KCBS, and then he worked for Warner Brothers People's Court, but he's done a lot of reporting over his life. And I do think those people legitimately report out stories. I mean, I do also think there's paparazzi and there's silly stories, but when they need to get it right, they do. So I do actually have quite a bit of respect for TMZ. And then, you know, and then they also do a lot of clickbait stories. Right. That's very interesting to take it like that because a, a lot of people just blanket as like, oh, my God, TMZ, and, you know, <laughs> and it's like, well, really look past that and see what exactly that they are breaking and how they're doing it. So what do you think it, that's about? Is that about relationships, like Harvey Levin's relationships? Yeah, to some extent. I think he does have really strong relationships with lawyers and legal community. I mean, Harvey will tell you that they do pay for tips. But another thing Harvey will say is if you are at the Today Show, you know, they might say, let's say something happened. They don't pay for the interview, but they'll pay for the video. So to some extent, the networks are also paying for information. They just aren't specifically paying for the interview. So, I mean, other people 
there is paying for things. There is money exchange. Is that the purest form? No, but I think it does exist. I think that TMZ definitely takes some criticism for that, but that on the flip side, I think like when P, when they break that, they break a lot of celebrity deaths. Obviously, one of the ones they broke was um, the owner of the Clippers and his racist comments, which ended up getting that guy out of a job. So, however, they got that news that was still picked up by everyone, followed up by everyone, and had an impact. I was thinking about that. And I mean, Harvey's interesting, too, that we'll talk about this on the panel, is he's very entrepreneurial. Mm-hmm. He, um, he has that idea for a different show every day. And he just did this show, we're going to talk about this, the show called Objectified, which is airing on either, I think, Fox Business. And the first one that he did actually was with Trump. And it's Trump going around, like Trump Tower, talking about objects in his home that sort of tell his story. And that that show, they aired it right after the election, and it did huge, huge numbers for them. And then Fox Business picked it up for, I think, for a short episode run coming later, for not just Trump, lots of other people. But so he's always coming up with shows like that that have nothing to do with TMZ, so he's interesting like that. So how do you feel that he, or both him and Frank, right, um, mm-hmm. how they leverage the everyday business for television and how do you make a hit you know it's like how can you know that that's going to be a hit if they're oh they definitely did not know (laughs) you just put it on the air and you see if it works but in that case it worked i think the more interesting case is they did so then tmz was doing a show called tmz live which just streamed online and it I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it's like Harvey talking to his different reporters. So it is pretty interesting, and they talk a little bit behind the scenes about the interviews they did and things like that, or they give their own take on news of the day. And, I mean, I think they, it costs them $10 to do it. I don't know. It's dirt cheap. And so Fox decided to try that out, and they put that show – I mean, they just take it off the digital production that they do and put it on their TV stations, and it works great. And so it makes them money. It's not expensive. People watch it. How do you feel that it has changed over the years? I think the thing about it that's interesting is that other people have tried to repeat that formula. And it's not – I really think Harvey is the secret sauce, actually. He's very telegenic. He's very relaxed in front of the camera. And he's very knowledgeable. And he's very interesting to watch. And that, to me, is actually the key to almost any daytime show. You really have to want to – spend time with the talent and he's like that so i think that i've seen a lot of shows try to do stuff similar and it just doesn't work in the same way so i think it's really about having the right talent and in front of the camera to make that stuff work yes not really about putting together a formula and, and trying it again right right so again you're going to be interviewing these two gentlemen frank and harvey levin um, now, yeah. Frank is the SVP of programming for Fox Television stations. Yeah, so uh, Frank um, makes a lot of decisions for the Fox, Fox-owned television stations about non-network programming that they're going to air. So, like, if you're talking about uh, KTTV in Los Angeles, mm-hmm. you'll have Fox at night from 8 to 10 or whatever. And then, you know, it's so like Empire, that kind of stuff, that comes from the network. But the news and, let's say... I don't know off the top of my head what's on that show, but let's pretend like Dr. Oz is on, TMZ. That's all Frank's group makes those decisions. Yeah, and a lot of people 
actually try to put the two together and people are like, no, hold on one second. There's, there's separate divisions. How do yeah, you... it's very confusing. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's very confusing. I know. I remember asking you, I was like, hey, so these people produce the show, but it's airing on stars. So how do yes, I mean, that's a whole different <laughs> business model of things. But yeah, I mean, I do think when people watch TV, they don't think about it. And really, why should they? But Typically, you have a production company producing a show, really, even on the networks, too. Mm-hmm. And then you have a, a distributor or a network distributor or a network airing the show. So let's say Netflix. Netflix airs uh, uh, Orange is New Black. That is produced by Lionsgate. So it's just a thing about the business of television that I don't really think consumers need to think about. But it does exist, and there's a lot of buying and selling among shows and also – a thing that I think is interesting is almost every show is its own business. Mm-hmm. And so, and I mean, sometimes Netflix doesn't really treat it like that, but each little show is its own little piece of business that gets handled however it gets handled. So, Paige, can you look at, like, a lineup that's coming up um, for the fall and say what show is going to make it and what show no. not? <laughs> if I could, I would be running NBC or something. <laughs> And I'd be the most successful television executive ever <laughs> on the planet. What? I mean, that's the thing with television. Nobody ever knows. Yeah. There is a show. This is not a primetime show, but this little show called Hot Bench, which is a syndicated show. It was created by Judge Judy. It, I mean, it was hard to sell. It was not on good stations. No one thought a thing about it. And now it's like the third highest rated show in daytime. It beats everything except um, Dr. Phil and Judge Judy. Wow. Which, I mean, it's still, you know, it's still like a, there's pros and cons to it, but it does really well, and and it, it was an afterthought, so you just never know. Yeah, you never know. How about some interviews that you've done that made an impact on your life? Everyone always asks me this question, and I'm not great with it, but let me think for one second. Oh, my gosh. Um, I'm just asking you blanket questions that everybody has. Oh my I know. God. I feel like I should have better answers, though. <laughs> I've interviewed Oprah many times. I think people always think it's cool to talk to Oprah, which it is. I have interviewed Steve Harvey several times, and he's a pretty fun interview, and he's pretty straight up. And I'll tell you, like, I find the more confident, the more A-list a star is, the more confident they are in an interview. Interesting. And I think that's interesting. Yeah. Like, the more confident, and the more confident person is, the more they're like, I don't really care what you ask me. I can handle anything you ask me. <laughs> right. But so don't you the think... More, the people that need more hand-holding, I feel like, are generally not as in their own power, if that makes sense. Yes, but also the people have press people that put all these limitations on an interview when maybe the star doesn't even have that you know I've seen yeah, it so happen. this happened to me so one time I was interviewing David E. Kelly this was a long time ago he had a show out called the Brotherhood of Poland New Hampshire oh, yeah yeah the, my the was publicist is a woman who's since become my friend but um she was like you cannot ask him about the ratings of the show because it was tanking on CBS oh, no. And, you know, as a reporter, you never want to hear that. You're, you never want to be told you can't ask anything. But I'm kind of like, all right, whatever. So I began my interview with David E. Kelly, and I think the second sentence out of his mouth was, well, the ratings really aren't very good. <laughs> so um, it's funny, like, the PR people try to intervene, but the people are going to say what they want to say. And, I mean, 
I think someone like David E. Kelly, he'd been around long enough, he knew the deal. But that's sort of what I'm saying. I think, like, I think if you interviewed, and I'm making this up and I have not interviewed her, but if you interviewed Meryl Streep, I bet she would be, like, ask me anything and super confident because I think she's been through stuff and she's not rattled. But if mm-hmm. you were talking to some kind of up-and-coming starlet who was just getting going, I think they're a lot more nervous about that kind of thing. And mm-hmm. not without reason, mm-hmm. you know? I know. Because some people just take their words and put it in a sound bite and it's like, what? I didn't mean it like that. Yeah, it's hard to manage your image and stuff can get taken out of context or stuff. Something that you say off the cuff could get blown up into this huge thing. So I think you do have to be careful, actually. Right. Careful what you tweet about. I mean, you see people's whole lives get wrecked because they tweet something stupid. Unfortunately, not some people's, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah. So how do you go about getting the stories and making sure that, you know, you're you're presenting it in a way that is clear and concise and, you know, doesn't take, you know, Harvey Levin or whomever you're interviewing out of context? I mean, I think that's just years of practice yeah. and a trying to trying to not have an agenda around what you're reporting, So, which is hard, but and I don't think everyone succeeds at it, but having an open mind about anything so that, mm-hmm. like I've had people ask me, okay, well, what is your, what are you writing? What is the story? And I'll say, I don't know what I'm writing because that's why I'm interviewing people. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't want to come in with a predetermined take. You want to say, I'm here, waiting to hear what they have to say, and then I'll write a story. Oh, absolutely. I mean, especially like on radio, you know, when I first started out, you know, we had everything scripted down to the, and then you hear it and you could totally tell someone's reading from a script. And Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that does, if they're not listening in an interview, you can tell because the follow-up questions don't make sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, you didn't even hear anything that guy just said. You were just waiting <laughs> to ask your next question. That I hear all the time, actually. That is something. But I mean, the other key to reporting, in my opinion, is really just about having the relationships, and that is something that takes time, and you have to be able to earn people's trust. So that's, so that goes back to what I said before about knowing the credibility of the publication. Right. So if you... If you're a reporter that's taken the time and and has earned people's trust and has the sources, mm-hmm. it's really not in your interest to burn them because then you won't have those sources anymore. So then that I think that news source and that reporter is somebody you know you can trust because of those relationships that he or she has. Right. Um, I know Stephen A. Smith always says, well, my sources, and they're like, well, name your source. But, you know, the next day something happens, and he goes, see, I told you, my source said it, this was going to happen. A lot of people are saying, oh, well, my anonymous source, and people are getting pissed about that. How do you manage that? I think that that is tricky, actually, and I definitely use background sources a fair amount. Um, Again, I think that's about relationships, and in that side of it, it's about a relationship that you have with an editor, so that your editor's know that you're legit and that you wouldn't write something that was wrong or that you're not fast and loose with the facts. Like for me, if I came to an editor and said, I have this story locked and I think we can go with it, Mm -hmm. they believe me and I've never, knock on wood, I've never gone out prematurely on a story. Mm -hmm. Anytime I've broken a story, it's been true. So that's good. But and that's, again, something that you build up over time. But um, I think the background sources thing is tricky. I think a legitimate news source, the, you, if you're using background sources, you're, you tend to be using a lot of them. Right. So you might only be quoting one or two, but you've probably talked to 10 
that happens to me a lot where maybe I don't have even a quote in the story on the record, but I've mm-hmm. talked to 10 people. Yeah. I know uh, Ramona Shelburne, who um, works here at ESPN as well, she she does that. She's like, she can tell when somebody only went to one source, but she makes sure that she goes to like like 10 sources like you. It's like, okay, well, we have a responsibility to get the story right. I'm not just going to ask one person. It depends on the story, right? I mean, if you're writing like a... Um, I'm making this up, but you are Katie Couric and you're launching a new talk show. And my story is about what Katie Couric says the talk show is going to be. I think it's fine to just talk to Katie Couric and maybe the producers, you know. Mm-hmm. But if you're trying to break a story, like, um, i trying to think of an example. This is a kind of a boring example, and I'm not doing this story. But let's pretend I was trying to break the story that Sinclair is trying to buy Tribune, which is actually in process happening. Mm-hmm. But then you would really want to try to talk to as many people as you could to get it all straight because that has not been officially confirmed. Mm, I see. Yeah. That's very interesting. But I think people get all up in arms about the background sources. I've definitely seen that conversation. Like the Washington Post or NPR, (laughs) when that was all happening about the, you know, the Russian investigation, people were getting all upset about background sources. But it's like when you're covering security, its background sources are nothing. Right, right. Do you think an, a news organization can come out of that if, you know, they had some people, like, nef- having nefarious, <laughs> nefarious uh, stuff happening in their news organization? Can can we really come out of that? I mean, there's two examples of that. The one is what I said with the New York Times and, the, um, and Jason Blair, mm-hmm. who was filing stories, but, like, not actually going and filing, like, fake expense reports and kind of just making stories up. So, like, that doesn't look great for them. And then they had another issue, and this this example is bad because I can't remember all the names of the people in the case, but they had another, you know, they've had other issues where people have, there's been problems with the reporting. It's the reporting where the reporter reported that um, there were weapons of mass destruction in... Iran or Iraq mm-hmm. back in the day. Mm-hmm. So anyway, so that was a big front page story, and then there turned out that there wasn't. So then that was the sourcing on that was questioned. So do I think that hurt the paper at the time? Yeah, I do. But they also quickly took steps to rectify it, so mm-hmm. that helps. Now the the other side is um, like the Gawker case with Hulk Hogan, where they oh, just got right. sued over that sex tape, and then you know that case completely took them out. The company got sold, oh, and right. that totally trashed them. So I think that's an example of how you have to be really careful. Yeah, and you do a, a lot of stuff in making sure that the writers you hire uh, are are legit, of course, but also you created a test to see how people write. Can you talk about that? Well, that's just a straight-up, like, here, take a test before we hire you and just do some writing so that you know when I get them when I get them in the chair, they're going to actually be able to turn stories over. But I don't – well, in the case you're talking about at PromXPDA, I don't make them do a reporting test. So, And I actually have never done that for a job. That would be an interesting thing to do. But I think it's hard – you know, reporting – like I said, reporting is a learned skill and a little bit of an art, so mm-hmm. – and a, and a total, it's all about relationships. Yeah. Well, so what do you look for in a writer when the, you're talking about uh, the television in- industry? Speed, accuracy, um, correct grammar, you know, like do... Like he be, she be, and we be? <laughs> <laughs> 
I mean, honestly, I wouldn't. It's you know, if somebody was writing for me and I had to rewrite every time they turned in a story, yeah. I wouldn't keep using them. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, like I need them to be able to basically have it in ship. You know, have it in solid shape because, like, I just don't have time to rewrite everybody's stuff. At least on the editing side, not on the reporting side. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, people have to be responsible, and then, you know, you, so. What you and I are talking about right now for the organization, for Promax BDA, which for where I'm editorial director, what we write about there is much less business-driven. So to me, it's a little bit less risky. It's a lot more about sort of showcasing people's work and efforts. Mm-hmm. So, But you want to be sure that the people that you work with are, are solid, are ethical, mm-hmm. are, you know, have the ability to translate an idea to paper. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just the basics, right? <laughs> huh? Can, just the basics, right? Can you speak? Yeah, I mean, and... just people that can... I feel like just being able to write is not a skill everybody possesses. Yeah, yeah. I I concur with that. So, Paige, again, you're going to be at the NAB talking with Harvey Levin and Frank Sicha, um, talking about syndicated entertainment news. Yes, that's true. On Monday at 3 o'clock, or 3.30, 3.30. Now, are they streaming that? Do you know? They are, but only if you've paid for the registration. Oh, okay, cool. Because actually, I just got that information was going to support it along, but you have to have registered. Oh, cool. Paige, thank you for spending time with me. It's always a pleasure. And again, for more information and to check out uh, all of your writing and what you're reporting, how can we do that? Um, you can go to broadcastingandcable.com or you can go to promaxbda.org and look at Daily Brief. All right. Well, thank you very much. Again, Paige Albiniak, Editorial Director for PromaxBDA and Contributing Editor for Broadcasting and Cable. I'm Laferne Cusack. Thanks so much for joining me. I'll see you next week here on ESPN LA. ESPN LA 710.